0: We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised.
1: So if Zelensky has military victories, and I think that the big the big time period, especially will be sort of March, late March, April, when a lot of this new military equipment's coming from the West, especially the tanks and the inventory fighting vehicles, then if that happens, then Putin, I think, is going to start to be on a steady slope downwards.
0: Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr.
2: On today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Taras Cusio, and we reflect on the first anniversary of Russia's war against Ukraine, and we discuss what to expect in the months ahead. I hope you find this episode interesting.
0: Thank you very much for listening, and take care. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast.
2: Dr. Cusio, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
2: It's great to have you back on. For the benefit of maybe new listeners, please could you just tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, um, I was born in Britain um, of Ukrainian-Italian origins, Uh, grew up in Yorkshire. Um, I've spent some time of my life in Toronto, about Mm. 15 years there, and then more recently six years in The Hague in, in the Netherlands and now back in England. Um, I've covered Ukraine and Russia for over 30 years since um, I was doing my MA in the, eight, in the late 80s um, and then did a PhD in the 90s. I've written, edited, co-authored um, about, uh, well, about 22 books. Um, the, the one just came out um, a couple of weeks ago was called Genocide and Fascism, Russia's uh, War Against Ukrainians. Ibidom uh, in Germany and Columbia University Press. Um, so it, I, I was thinking at my time of life to kind of reduce my publishing output, but uh, Vladimir Putin had other ideas.
2: Yes, yes, indeed. Well, we are days away from the anniversary of Russia's war on Ukraine. And I just wanted to ask you about sort of what your thoughts were as we approach this terrible anniversary
1: well it's um it's it's a funny one in some ways because my um, I, I, I the ukrainian community in great britain is quite nationalistic it's a political uh emigration not an economic um like in, for example canada um and and so they came here after world war ii quite anti-soviet quite anti-communist so i grew up in a quite a nationalistic community and i kind of when i went to university um, and it was sort of the 1990s, Russia and Boris Yeltsin, more liberal Russia. I kind of rebelled against my uh, upbringing um, and told my dad, no, you were wrong. You know, your views are in the past. Um, everything's changed. We're, we're looking to a brighter future. Uh, look at Russia today. Well, a couple of years ago, I went back to my dad and said he was right. <laughs> <laughs> After all, it was me that was wrong um because um some things never change and um you know i think a lot of the optimism that we had about russia in the 1990s is all gone out of the window um most of us never expected a full scale war on this stage more the sort of 2014 hybrid war fair type of um activities um but um but it but it is rational and logical from a Russian point of view because that Russian imperial mentality, if you want to call it, or the ability to transition to a post imperial uh, mentality, which took place in Turkey in the 1920s, um, took place in Britain, France after World War II, Germany after Nazism, that's never taken place in Russia. So I think we should put what's happened in terms of the invasion within the context of Putin's rule of Russia over 23 years. He's taken the country backwards. Um, he's re-so- he re-Sovietized the country. He rehabilitated white Russian emigres um, by bringing their remains back, reburying them, republishing their works. Um, and he's um, transformed the so-called Great Patriotic War into a religious cult. He's also undergone a massive rehabilitation of Stalin. So all of that is the background context to the invasion and to the brutality. It's not just the military invasion. It's the brutality of the invasion. And when you look at the Russian army today, it's no different, in my eyes, from the Soviet army that raped and pillaged across Eastern Europe and Germany in World War II. Um, It's the same. Nothing much has changed. Um, And the Russian people continue to be um, subjects they they're, they're like 19th century serfs they're not citizens um, and you see this in the human wave attacks taking place by Russians um, in, in the Donbass and the Ministry of Defense's military intelligence, just in the last few days, is talking about the highest ever daily casualty rates since the war began of over 800 killed a day. Wow. I mean, it's just um, um, unbelievable um, that you have not only this return to this uh, religious cult of great patriotic war, Joseph Stalin, who, of course, in my eyes, is a is a is a war criminal like Adolf Hitler. But you have a return to World War One style human wave attacks. Um, with you know, with somebody in, in power, Vladimir Putin, who not only doesn't give a damn about you know British lives in with the Skripal case in two thousand eighteen, or with the Ukrainian lives, he doesn't care about Russian lives. So the, all of this is the context of what is taking place and the brutality and the. And I think Vladimir Putin's visceral anger. I mean, he's a very angry man um, who believes. He's at war with the West, which destroyed the country he loved, the USSR. He hasn't got over that yet. Um, He'll never get over it. Um, He thinks this was a, you know, it's always a Western conspiracy in the KGB mindset. And so he's fighting his last war in Ukraine against the West. Um, And he thinks he's going to win it um, and go down in history as the big Russian leader, you know, to follow Stalin, Peter the Great, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
2: Mm-hmm. How is the war being perceived by the general public in Russia, and has anything sort of changed in the times that we've spoken?
1: It's a good question because I think there's a lot of mis- misperceptions mm-hmm. in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, you know, the the what I call Russianists, uh, um, people who focus in think tanks or academia on Russia. Um, I think spread a, a bit of misinformation about how. Russians are not supporting the war. You know, there's there's a liberal tr- liberal trend in Russia. I think that's not true. There's no evidence of that. They they it's as though they're desperate to find this Russian opposition to the war. Um, there's one independent pollster in Russia still remaining called the the Levada Center, and it's um, monthly questioning. Of Russians, uh, do you support the war in Ukraine? Shows a steady, um, steady majority of about seventy to eighty percent supporting the war. Now, some people argue, well, you can't really get an authentic opinion poll in a, in a dictatorship, which is Russia. Nevertheless, um, it's it's a fact that um, Russians ignored the war crimes and the war until the autumn of last year when the war came to them, when Putin launched mobilization. So prior to that, they didn't give a damn about what was taking place, the the war crimes, Mm. the Mm. destruction of Ukrainian cities, the raping, the pillaging, the looting. Um, And then about 700,000 fled the country. Um, But even abroad in democratic countries like Georgia and Armenia, they haven't protested against the war. I mean, so the argument that they make, well, we can't protest inside Russia, it's an authoritarian regime, we'll go to jail. Well, why are you not protesting in Georgia and Armenia? You're not. Um, And also, I think the argument against not protesting is quite um, hollow, because um, we've seen massive protests by very brave people in Iran. And Iran is just as brutal, if not more brutal, regime than actually Russia is. I mean, in Russia, you might go to jail for protesting in, in, in iran you'll be hung you'll be executed um so i i think this is hollow and this is, has, a, has had a direct impact on the manner in which ukrainians view the russian people because after the 2014 crisis ukrainians um had a very high majority who held negative opinions of russian leaders but not the russian people so they differentiated today they have very high negative views of both the Russian leaders and the Russian people. Because they don't see the Russian people opposing the war. Um, They see strong opinion polls. They see Russians basically agreeing. They're complaining about being poorly trained. They're complaining about poor military equipment. But they're still going to fight. So, you know, in the West, we focused on the 700,000 who have fled Russia. But there's far more. There are millions more Russians who stayed who are now willing to go and fight, despite the fact that 800 plus are being killed a day. So um, so I think that um, um, that is, is is something that we should bear in mind in terms of Russian society. It's been zombified, and I'm not exaggerating by using that term, it's been zombified by 20 years of state control of media, particularly of TV, Russian TV on a daily basis, calls for genocide in Ukraine, you know, vilifies Ukraine and Ukrainians and the West. Um, Now, that's Russian society. The Russian regime, well, um, again, we have speculation about a palace coup, about a post-Putin era, um, this, that, and the other. We should bear in mind that um, in communist and post-communist states like Russia, there's no tradition of coups. This is not Latin America or Southern Europe, where you have traditions of military, military intervention, and, and Turkey, which has had countless military coups. Um, the, and that's not happened in Central Eastern Europe and the former USSR. So the idea of a coup is difficult to see. Um, I think what you can see is that Putin is a wounded beast. Um, and some would argue that makes him more dangerous. Um but also um he's um he'll he can't give up because if he gives up, he's finished. He wants to go into Russian history as the great Russian leader who unified the Russian people by Russian people he means U- Russians, Ukrainians and Belarusians. um Russian army hasn't had any military victories. It's losing a huge number of military equipment, something like half of Russian tanks have been destroyed. 800 Russians killed a day. He thinks that um, because Russia has a bigger population and a kind of a zombified population that that Russia will win with attrition, that, that there's more more Russians that were willing to die than Ukrainians say. And he also thinks that the West will eventually give up and pressure Ukraine, to negotiate a bad deal. So that's what Putin's waiting for. He's he's in there for the long haul. Ukrainians, on the contrary, and the West, would like this to be over quicker. Putin, I think, is in a dangerous position because I find it difficult to see how he can have successful military victories. And Zelensky is the opposite. He needs military victories to justify the West sending him military equipment. I mean, if he doesn't have military um, victories, then some Western governments will say, why are we bothering sending this stuff? Um, It's not being used properly. So if Zelensky has military victories, and I think that the big big time period especially will be sort of late March, April, when a lot of this new military equipment is coming from the West, especially the tanks and the infantry fighting vehicles then if that happens, then Putin, I think, is going to start to be on a steady slope downwards. Because to be perceived as weak um, in a dictatorship is, 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 a, is a death sentence. Um, because you've you know dictatorships always propagate this image of a macho um, male you know, leader, as it were. And Putin's already wounded him by previous defeats in Kiev, Kharkiv, and Kherson, I think if he gets a couple of more of those, it, he could be on the steady slope downwards. And then we simply don't know um, what's going to happen because, of course, there's no honour amongst thieves. And this is a, a cabal of kleptocrats. Because
2: mm. mm. there's lots of talk of uh, post-Putin Russia kind of being a bit of a free-for-all and Russia fracturing and things like that. I mean, I, I, what do you... What do you think is the sort of likely scenario for Putin sort of going? I don't, you know, whether it be by force or retirement or, or whatever. Well,
1: um, again, an interesting question because um, um, decades ago, you know, uh, the only people to talk about the disintegration of the Russian Federation were my father's generation, sort the, of the anti-communist, anti-Russian uh, emigre nationalists. Yeah. It was a very marginal viewpoint ironically in the last year it's it's now become a mainstream topic of discussion so it's, got, it's moved from the margins to the mainstream and quite a few mainstream media media outlets are discussing this question some western experts and think tankers are arguing that this should be u.s policy this should be western policy but i think before you get to having a policy that you're supporting this this disintegration of russia you need to firstly have a policy that you support the defeat of russia and and that's not a clearly clear cut viewpoint across the entire west i mean i think only the united kingdom poland baltic states scandinavia really has a hardline view that our goal should be the defeat of Russia. The United States, France and Germany are kind of wavering on this question, they never actually say it, because of course f- the one thing they're afraid of is the nuclear question. But the fracturing of Russia, I think, is, um, is, is, out, is up there now, and I think it's um, to do with the fact um, um, it, it makes, it brings back deja vu memories of 1989, 1990 in the Soviet Union. I mean, the Russian Federation is after all, a mini empire. Um, Russians today are only 70% of the population of the Russian Federation, Um, and they're they're declining in number, and, and the number of people from the national minorities are growing. Again, very similar to the end of the Soviet Union, where the Russian population was in decline and the population of the Muslim republics was growing. And there's also, I think, growing discontent because the Kremlin has been deliberately using national minorities as cannon fodder. I mean, they, their casualty rates, at least until at least last year, were proportionally far higher than those of ethnic Russians. So I think that certainly in the event of a power struggle in Moscow with a weakened Vladimir Putin, that the fracturing of Russia along the lines of what we had in the 1990s where um, autonomous republics were saying we want maximum sovereignty which you know everything except independence basically is is i think a, a very realistic um in the 1990s it was boris yeltsin's fault because he basically said to these autonomous republics grab as much sovereignty as you can well i think that's what would happen in this in this eventuality and the big um I think the big uh, question mark is going to be Chechnya again, because um kadyrov, the the puppet leader of Chechnya, is um his fate is completely tied to Putin's. um if Putin's on his way down, then Kadyrov is going to be afraid of losing power, and the Chechens don't forgive. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know he's going to argue, of course, that he's a. Chechen patriot because he saved the Chechen people from even worse genocide than what Putin was committing. But I don't think that will wash. I mean, there is a Chechen volunteer battalion fighting for Ukraine. Um, There's a lot of Chechen members of the diaspora. There's a huge Chechen population in, in, in Turkey since the 18th, 19th century. So I think that will certainly be a major Problem area, and then and then obviously think that will lead to uh, a knock-on effect on to other republics. How Putin will would go? I think I think it's a it's more not a big bang. Putin going, it's more a case of declining power and declining ability to project um, that he's in charge and and an image of growing weakness, which I which will lead to him having increasing number of enemies i mean you would think that eventually people in the russian military and the russian intelligence services will see that the huge number of people being killed russians and the huge amount of military equipment being destroyed is going to have a major impact on russia as a great power as a military power and maybe we need to stop this because i mean it's, russia's already lost that image um of, of having a powerful army and having not and being a great power it's de facto already a younger brother of china um so I, I mean i think all of those things are up for grabs and i think 2023 is the year when this will be decided
2: yeah i think it's gonna be a very decisive year one quick thing um I've noticed there's some tension. Uh, well, it's been reported tension between sort of Putin and the head of the the Wagner Group. Prigozhi. Yeah, and I believe he's sort of been touted as a potential Putin replacement. I mean, is there any substance to that belief at the moment?
1: No, no, yeah. there is no substance at all. Um, uh, I think this, this is one of these uh, areas that the Western media love to speculate mm, upon. Mm. You know, because it's part of the post-Putin debate. Um, I mean, Prigozhin is as is as hated as is Kadyrov by the Russian establishment. Um, he's um, he's an ex-criminal. Um, he, he, he got involved in various unpleasant things whilst he was in prison, which I won't go into. Um, and um, and so he doesn't have any respect amongst the population and uh, amongst Russian elites. So I don't think he's a contender and And what seems to have happened in the last week or so is that he's on the way down because uh, his his gambit to use criminals to have to ensure a breakthrough in the donbass for Russian forces um, and then to prove that he was better than the Russian military failed. Um, I mean, it led to a lot of dead criminals. I mean I mean Russia's uh, budget will be for a lot less people in prison. I mean, those Wagner units, composed of criminals, lost about eighty percent of their their, their members mm. and were killed. Mm. I mean, it was it was just incredible the the, the kill rate. But it failed, um, and so um, his ability to project himself as sort of better than the Russian military has failed. Uh, Putin installed a new military commander of forces in Ukraine, Gerasimov, and and I think. And what would seem to be the case is that Gerasimov said, "Okay, but uh, get rid of this guy. I'm fed up of him, you know, sort of ba- clapping at my ankles, as it were, and 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 complaining. Because the two people who were always complaining about the performance of the Russian military were Kadyrov and Rigorzyn. Um, And so I think they've both been, as it were, re. Reshackled um, and told to back off, as it were. so i I, I think that's an exaggeration. I mean, uh, don't get me wrong, a post putin, well firstly, um this war will continue as long as Putin is in power. He can't go back. he can't rewind the clock, as it were. Um, and secondly, Putin can't go into retirement, as you put it, because there's no honor amongst thieves. Um he knows that he has to stay in power indefinitely, otherwise, If he goes into retirement, what he stole and his personal fate is up for grabs. And there's no honour. I mean, there's there's no um, trust, as it were, that he'll be allowed to plant potatoes in his dacha as a retired pensioner. It's not going to happen. It doesn't happen in those systems. So he's got to stay in power indefinitely. And that was what happened with the change of the Constitution three years ago. It de facto made him president until two thousand. 2036, but de facto president for life. And his fate's also tied to this military campaign in Ukraine, which they expected to to last a couple of weeks and now has lasted more than a year. So um, if Putin fails on that, he's dead. He's finished. I mean, I, I don't see how he can survive. He'll just disappear. Um, but I I don't I would I wouldn't expect his successor to be a liberal or a Democrat. I mean, that's another one of these myths. Um, Navalny has been touted, but I just don't see how Navalny would ever be able to become Russian president. And anyway, uh, Navalny is basically a liberal nationalist. He's not a Democrat, um, certainly on Ukraine. Um, so it's, it would be another strongman, um, another um, whoever. Now, Putin's big problem in general is that he doesn't have sons. So he can't pass it on, you know, like in Syria or, or elsewhere where the father passes the mantle. To the son, of North Korea, for example, he can't do that. Um, so there is no successor. I've never heard of a successor for Putin.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one. Two other little speculative things that covered a lot of the media over here. Um, we have Putin and his doubles, and then we have Putin's health. Do you have any thoughts on any of those uh, those points?
1: On the health question, we simply don't know. I mean, there's some. Some people say there's some good evidence of some bad case of his health um the only way i could kind of bring in the health question is to try to use it as an explanation as to why he invaded because um you know what was the rush to invade now Mm -hmm. why now Mm -hmm. why 2022 yeah um was zelensky really getting up your back um i mean you know he's he's actually politically ideologically he's a centrist he's not um, the previous president was more right-wing, more center-right. So um, the only way I can maybe explain why, or one of the ways we explain why he invaded is because he was afraid of uh, the fact he didn't know how long he still had. Now, this doesn't mean, say, he's ill, you know, like he's, on, he's dying, but it could mean that he's been told that there are potentially dangerous parts of your health that we're not sure about that's going to send an alarm signal to his head i need to accomplish my goal which is what he calls the gathering of russian lands yeah so i mean he's had that goal since uh, sort of about 2008 2009 onwards especially from 2012 when he became president again and by the gathering of russian lands he means ukraine russia belarus um those three countries were the core of the Soviet Union, and he thinks they should be the core of um, the Eurasian Union again. And you can't have this Russian world, that's, this, what's called in Russian, Ruski Mir, you can't have that without Kiev and Ukraine, because Kiev is 600 years older than Moscow. So, so Ukraine is the key country, and it's not Belarus or even Crimea. So I think that could be a way of explaining why the invasion happened and why Putin thought there was an urgency to take to do this. Um, on um, on on your, I, I can't remember your first question. Um, oh, it
2: was about uh, the doubles. There seems to be sightings of doubles of Putin and people endlessly speculating.
1: Well, they've used those all the time. Actually, I'll give you an interesting background to that. Uh, back in the. I think it was the late 70s. Mm, mm. I was at a demonstration in London outside the Soviet embassy. And this was against the, the so-called head of Soviet trade unions. I mean, of course, there was no trade unions in the Soviet Union, but he was the head. He was invited to Britain by the Trade Union Congress. Can you believe it? Um, TUC. Um, um, but his previous position was head of the KGB. So that tells you everything about <laughs> Soviet trade unions. He was invited to London. We did a big, big. We had a, a couple of big demos outside the Soviet embassy. And when he was head of the KGB, he organised the assassination in Munich of two Ukraine emigre leaders, in fifty-seven and fifty-nine. The first one, Lev Rebet, the second one, Stepan Bandera, um using a poison gun that was not evident on the person who died. It, it made him. Uh, it, created, it made him have a heart attack. So they only found out that these two had died from an assassination when the KGB assassin defected in 1961. But anyway, this is the the KGB head who oversaw this. Coming to London as the head of the trade unions, we were ready to jump on his car when he came out of the Soviet embassy. Guess what? He had a double. <laughs> he also had a double. So the, one, the guy who came out of the front was a double of of the of the of the former <laughs> head of the KGB and the real mm. head of the former KGB now head of trade unions went out the back, so I think this is obviously a long tradition in uh, in KGB mindsets which has now been used by the FSB.
2: That's amazing. I mean, it must be it must be getting um, harder to find a good double in the age of the internet because we're under such scrutiny for, uh, photographically now.
1: You're absolutely right because um, these. Um, uh, some people seem to have a lot of time on their hands who sit and, 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 and like, scour Twitter and elsewhere for these things. I mean, there was a, there was two f- funny photographs recently where Putin was in a crowd of people and he was wearing platform shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and either he's into the 1970s <laughs> and he's watched too much John Travolta um, or or he's got a Napoleonic complex yeah. that, you know, he feels he's too short. Um, and then there's another one where um he was allegedly amongst friends but he's wearing a bulletproof vest and and he see it it, it stood out on his jacket at the back his jacket was too tight so his bulletproof vest stuck out as he was as 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 the picture was showing the back of his body yeah so yes you're absolutely right i mean you can't get away with anything today i mean then we only found out I think uh, when we were doing the demonstration outside the embassy, we only found out I think the day later. Yeah,
2: I wanted to talk a little bit about like the support for Russia. So probably got a few angles on that. But um, there's been some recent sort of spy cases, certainly in Germany. A senior member of the BND was arrested and turned out he'd been spying for Russia and it's speculated that he had a bit of a love for the sort of far right ideology and i've noticed in quite a few cases of people working for russia recently that there seems to be a kind of a far right ideological kind of leaning and i know russia presents itself as the savior of the white christian world and i was wondering if you had any insight on 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 that
1: it all can be traced back to when putin becomes president again in 2012 mm. he propagates this um, uh, I want to call it ideology of, of conservatism, what, what he calls conservatism, and traditional values. I think the key is the phrase traditional values, which means sort of hostility to, um, especially hostility to LGBT, um, support allegedly for the traditional family, also hostility to multiculturalism, mm-hmm. to multinational institutions like the European Union, which allegedly are reducing the power of the nation state. And, and therefore of globalization. So all of these things become traditional kind of antagonisms that, that Russia is against. But Russia's always had that. I mean, I remember Zorzhenitsyn growing, growing up and, and reading and devouring Zorzhenitsyn's books that were translated into English in the sort of 70s. And then a big disappointment with Zorzhenitsyn. He comes, he's kicked out of the Soviet Union, comes to the West, and what does he do? He starts attacking the West. Same, It's the same Russian nationalist position as what you have today in Russia, that the West is decadent, the West is on its way downhill, the West has lost its spirituality, Russia's far more superior mm-hmm. in terms of its spirituality and, and civilization. This is just basically a traditional um, hundred years, hundreds of years old Russian inferiority complex vis-a-vis the West, which argues that Eurasianism you know where we, where russia is allegedly at the center of this eurasian civilization is supposedly superior to western i don't see any evidence of that in terms of divorce rates alcoholism you know violence against women um abortions you name it in russia i mean it has an average male life expectancy the same as bangladesh in russia um so the idea that somehow Russia's more superior is just part of this inferiority complex and hence this Sort of these traditional values. There's also a geopolitical aspect that they were attempting to finance extreme left and extreme right. It's Mm. not just extreme right, extreme left Mm. as well. Mm. So they there's a lot of useful idiots on both extreme left and extreme right. We had Jeremy Corbyn in Britain, um, for example, um, who propagated these views that it's all the fault of the West, it's a fault of NATO, that these crises Now they were very active um, in two thousand fourteen in the crisis. They really crawled out from under their rocks. Um, I don't see them as much today because it's more difficult um, to support Russia today, which is doing this, you know, genocidal crimes and war crimes in Ukraine. It's a bit embarrassing to support Russia. So today, in if in two thousand fourteen the argument of these useful idiots was to blame NATO and the US for the crisis, not Russia. Today. What they're doing instead is arguing for peace, arguing for peace talks, um, and saying, you know, um, this is what Jeremy Corbyn's doing all the time, um, saying that we need to have peace talks because anything's better than bloodshed and war. But any peace talks today are working in the towards the benefit of Russia, because what it would do would solidify Russian conquests of Ukraine. Um, that's what any peace talks would do today. So um, I, I think all of those um, factors are there. I think, though, we have to be careful not to sort of paint it all um, with one brush, as it were, because not all uh, right-wing governments are pro-Russian or pro-Putin. I mean, there are many examples in Europe. Italy, for example, has had the most right-wing government ever um, in in, in Italy since World War II, is actually very pro-NATO and very anti-Putin, pro-Ukrainian. And the... The Italian prime ministers um, really condemned Berlusconi a couple of days ago for his pro Putin remarks. Uh, Poland is another example of, the, of uh, being a right wing government, but, but very anti Putin. Denmark, I mean, there are plenty of examples of that. I mean, we tend to uh, unfortunately focus on the pro Russian Western countries, like, you know, particularly in France, um, in the SPD, um, in Germany the social democrats tend to be sort of um it's just like a mix of cnd and and corbynites Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so schultz is fighting against that but ironically you know the party we would never expect to be anti-russian um are the greens greens are the biggest anti-russian party in germany so again we we usually tend to lump them with the left but they here they prize human rights and and those kind of things. So it's a mixed picture. I think that obviously the key, key part of your question focuses on on, um, on the U.S. But let's just quickly talk about Britain. I mean, Britain's had Brexit. You, the Tory party is more right wing than ever. Um, at the same time, when Zelensky visited England a couple of weeks ago, um, the entire British establishment, political and royal, supported Ukraine. Mm. There was no divisions, mm. absolutely zero divisions mm. within any of the political parties, in, including um, the Tory party. So I don't see Britain there. And Britain is really out out, out there leading the pact, saying the goal should be the defeat of Putin and Russia. And, and, and it's a country always um, putting forward support in terms of providing military equipment. But other countries are going, oh, I'm not sure. And then eventually agree as well. You, the you in the US, when I've taken note of this again, the focus is tends to be on the Republicans, but there's also a Corbynite wing of the Democratic Party as well. Um, and they made a stupid statement in, in last year, which was slapped down by Biden. Um, so I, from what I've calculated, it's about 15 percent of the members of Congress from the Democratic Party. And about twenty-five percent from the Republican Party who have this. Now, of course, they tend to be the, always the loudest. They're always the one shouting stuff, and they're always in the media, so they tend to get a lot of media publicity. Um, but th- I think there's still a lot of Republicans who are who are more, shall we say, traditional. They might be populist, but they they understand what's what's at stake, and and they should surely understand that there's a direct connection between. Ukraine-Russian war and China-Taiwan. You know, a lot of these American Republican populists are saying we need to focus on China more than than Russia. Um, But actually, because Ukraine was not defeated by Russia, China's having second thoughts about invading Taiwan. I mean, if Russia had been successful, as it believed in conquering Ukraine with a couple of days, China would probably be now fighting or taking over Taiwan. I um, mean the two are very closely connected. So um, I think that uh, you can't sort of separate those. Those and it's it's in the interest of America dealing with China over Taiwan that it's um, America is successful with Russia because once Russia has been defeated, as it were, and the Russian military is no longer as as, as, as powerful, then the United States will be able to focus on China. Because the fear was always, when Biden came to power, he talked about parking Russia and dealing with China. Well, that didn't work, Um, (laughs) and um, so. But I mean, you can you can park Russia when it's defeated, at least for a few years, whilst it's rebuilding its military. I mean, that would take five to ten years with the state of Russia's economy. So then you can focus on China. But um, so I I I think I'm hopeful that the Republicans will not be as bad as many people fear. But let's assume we don't know what's gonna, who's going to win, because if Trump stands and another uh, Republic, and, uh, as an independent and another Republican candidate stands as well, like DeSantos from Florida, then I, the Republican vote will be split and Biden will probably win. So it, it, it's up for grabs. I don't think it's as bad as people say. I mean, the traditionally pro-Russian countries of, which are France and Germany have, have remained there. that that hasn't that's always been the case and that's that's remained. Now they've shifted a bit in those countries, particularly Germany, I think, more than France. So it's not as bad. The big, to be honest, the weirdest country in Europe is Hungary. It's like that. Like the whole country's forgotten about 1956. I mean, the Russians were terrible in 1956. I mean, they. You know, this was a brutal war against the Hungarians. They they massacred loads of them. They executed the Hungarian patriots, and it's like they have forgotten. the The Hungarian foreign minister was just in Minsk a couple of days ago, meeting meeting Belarusians and Russian leaders. I mean, it's it's incredible um, there, and they have the same type of government as in Poland, but look at the completely different approaches yeah. to Russia.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating. Do you think that? Forgetting of history could that be partly connected to Russian misinformation efforts and political support in Hungary over the years?
1: Well, when Russia um, launches these sort of disinformation and propaganda campaigns, they never work if there's if if they're applied to barren ground, as it were. Mm, mm. Um, I mean, they. I mean, that's why the um, Russian propaganda campaigns never work in Britain. Because there's no tradition of anti Americanism and there's no tradition of, of pro Russianism in Britain. I mean, you know, Corbynites accepted, but I mean, they were a, a blip in the political sort of, landscape of Britain. Um, but in countries where there is traditional anti Americanism, Latin America, France, maybe Germany, then they can make headway. Um, and, and, and those far, um, and in Germany, where the headway is with the far right party alternative germany and with um russians who used to live in, in the former soviet union and emigrated to germany plus you have the problem of far right um support in, in the former gdr former east germany um so it depends um the in the case of hungary i think it's um it's uh, that russian disinformation propaganda is 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 fertile because the Hungarians' identity has been, whipped, um, has been whipped up, as it were, surrounding what they feel is an injustice committed to them, can you believe it, 100 years ago, with the Treaty of Trianon, which, which took away about two-thirds of their territory um, in 1919. So I think they're still, they're for some reason, angry about that. Mm. I mean, Poland lost territory mm. as well, but it, it's not a problem for Poland. Hungary is is, is is problematical. There are Hungarian minorities in Ukraine, uh, Slovakia, and Romania, and and so they they are very that anger it, uh, becomes pro-Russianism, um, and becomes they become outliers in in the EU and in NATO. I mean the at the recent EU summit about a week ago um Orban was sat on his own. Nobody wanted <laughs> to talk to him at all. Um, so I think I think Russian disinformation um can only work if there's already this kind of a fertile potential there. Um, and in um in the US, of course, it focuses on immigration and particularly the the whole um um Hispanic question and um and I think um the excessive Movement towards his political correctness and, um, and what has been nicknamed uh, wokeism, as it were, and all of that is something that they focus on in the U.S. Um, but you know, it's a bit of a bit of a bit of a joke to say that if anybody in the West believes that um, the Russian uh, Russian system or Russian leaders are symbols of of Christian. Values. I mean, give me a break. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, um, you know, of the white of the white race. I mean, um, um, I think that's a, that's a bit ridiculous. But um, people want to believe what they believe. Um, mm. yeah. So I
2: want to ask you a bit about your sort of thoughts on President Zelensky's visit to the UK last week. I mean, it was it was pretty amazing to watch.
1: Zelensky is without any question and um, a Ukrainian Winston Churchill, mm. um, and, and I'm saying that. As somebody who did not support his election in 2019, I supported his main contender, Petro Poroshenko. Um, like a, and, and like a lot of Ukrainians um, in Ukraine, um, they've changed their minds. He, he now has uh, popularity ratings of 80 plus, 80%, 80% plus. So I think there is a Zelensky up to the war, where I think you could criticize him for being maybe naive on Russia not wanting to listen to Western intelligence. That he was being told about the pending Russian invasion um, and the Zelensky since um, he's very charismatic he's very approachable um, he's got a good sense of humor he's, he's got great speech writers um, and so he knows which as it were things to press um, where whichever country is speaking at um, and, um, you know, he's, he's, he has a clean record. I mean, no Ukraine has a free media and no Ukrainian journalist has ever found any corrupt skeletons in his closet. Um, so he's not um, the, what we have tended to think of as the traditional politician from that part of the world who made a lot of money in the, in the 1990s Wild West transition from communism. He's not like that. He's a self-made man. He's... In, in, he made his own money in the field of um, entertainment, um, and um, and uh, so I think that appeals, of course. I mean, you know, I don't think Western leaders tend not to want to deal with somebody corrupt, um, and also um, he's he's got Jewish background. I mean, he doesn't propagate that, he doesn't promote that. Um, it's partly because in the former Soviet Union, many of the Jews um, were quite. Became quite secular because of the Soviet regime, but I think a key factor on the Jewish side is that, and I've, this is based on my own research in the Ukrainian city of Petrovsk, uh, which has a, a massive Jewish revival since 1991. Is that Jews are never nostalgic for the Soviet Union. They they always saw the Soviet Union as a as a negative entity that di- destroyed their Culture and religion oppressed them, and Jews were um, socioe- socio-economically disadvantaged in the Soviet Union. They couldn't become doctors, teachers, um, certain professions. Um, so there was a, um, even though this was a sort of supposedly equal, you know, and and communist system, there was a lot of anti-Semitism, which was disguised mm. as anti-Zionism. Mm. Remember Corbynites, yeah. anti-Zionism yeah. and this is this is where it comes from, from the Soviet Union. But anti-Zionism was always a, a, a camouflage anti-Semitism. And these Jews who came out of the Soviet Union remember that. So they have no nostalgia. And therefore they have they aren't like Putin, because for them Putin is simply, you know, somebody trying to revive the USSR. That's how they see him. They see Russia and the Soviet Union as the same thing. So that makes them default. By default, pro-Western and pro-Ukrainian, and that doesn't matter. That many of them can be Russian speakers, by the way, as well. That's irrelevant. So, and that I think explains uh, Zelensky. It also explains it as well that he's a product. His entire life is a product of independent Ukraine. I mean, when when the USSR disintegrated, he had he was 14 years old. So he spent most of his most of, most of his life in an independent country. That also means that he doesn't really have any nostalgia for that previous past. So I think all of those factors together leads him to be very endearing, I think, to, to outside governments, um, including when he came to Britain. He is, I mean, the British automatically, you know, what, what the British have such a deep rooted identity vis-a-vis Dunkirk and Winston Churchill at the Battle of Britain, that they will automatically see all of that in Zelensky. This embattled leader fighting horrible invaders. And and for the U, and for the US, when he went to Washington, of course, it's the democratic leader fighting the evil and um, authoritarians. Um, so it's slightly different but but similar. I mean there is a 1776 moment, I think, there as well. Um, the, and everybody laughs at the idea that Ukraine's run by Nazis. I mean, I mean, you've got a Jewish president yeah. for Christ's sake. <laughs> um, you know, um, so you can't pin that label on Zelensky either. I mean, you know, come on. I mean, he's the only reason he's alive is because his grandfather was fighting in the Soviet Army in World War II. All the rest of his grandfather's family was murdered in the Holocaust. So I think all of those factors combined together mean that Ukraine um, is very lucky. Um, I mean, he's the right person at the right time. I mean, I think, you know, even supporters of Poroshenko, the previous president, will say that, well, you know, I think it's better that Zelensky is now president during this war than Poroshenko. Because Poroshenko always had question marks about corruption and, um, and, other, and other issues. So, I, I mean, Zelensky um, has, has had, a, I think he's been welcomed in so many places. There's one exception. I would say, and it's and it's probably the biggest disappointment for him. He's never talked about it, but I suspect it has to be a major disappointment for him. And That's Israel. Israel has not agreed to to, to provide Ukraine with weapons and has not agreed to support Ukraine. Israel's argument is that it doesn't want to uh, you know, antagonise Russia in Syria. I don't personally believe that. I think there's more. Uh, there's are other, other issues at stake, um, and and. Possibly to going back to your question about disinformation, going back to even Soviet era um, attacks and and propaganda and disinformation against Ukrainian um, diaspora and accusing them of being Nazi collaborators of of nationalists. The KGB and the Soviet regime focused on Ukraine Ukrainian diaspora when he did that. The biggest amount of propaganda in the Cold War from the Soviet regime was always against Ukrainian diaspora, never against the Russian and then to a lesser degree against the three Baltic peoples. So I think some of that has stuck in Israel. Um, and there was a, an American Ukrainian who was accused of being a camp guard called Ivan Demenyuk. The evidence against him was, was KGB falsified evidence. He was um, tried in America, then he was sent to Israel to be tried. The Israelis found him not guilty. But of course, you know there was a lot of um, outcry about him and this and disinformation, and then he was sent to Germany, where he died in prison. Um, so, so I think that Dimanuk effect is really the the main reason. I don't think it's Syria. And what what is not understandable is not only that you know Israel is ignoring a country led by um, a descendant of a family that suffered in the Holocaust, but also because um, of Iran. Mm. Um, Iran is using Ukraine as a testing ground for military equipment yeah. that obviously it's going to use next against Israel. Yeah. Um, and, um, and there's no such thing as a free lunch. So everything that Iran gives to Russia, Russia's going to give something back in return. And that's going to be uh, you know, higher technology military equipment like fighter jets and, I think, nuclear technology to help Iran's nuclear program. So Israel's position doesn't make much sense. Again, maybe there's something there as well between Netanyahu and Putin. There seems to be an extreme right-wing connection there as well, possibly. Maybe corruption angle there as well. So it's a a bizarre case, um, Israel, because even the American pressure has not pushed uh, Israel to start helping Ukraine. And um, some of the Israeli military equipment would be very useful, such as the Iron Dome air defences.
2: Yeah, it does seem a bit short-sighted on Israel's part, but um, I don't know, maybe we'll find out something a bit further down the line. that will make it make sense. I don't know. It's very strange. Now, before we wrap up, there's two more questions i to ask you. Now spring is sort of coming, what do you think will happen in the months ahead?
1: Putin is, irrespective of losses, because he doesn't give a damn hmm. about human, human, Russian human life, Russia has tried to preempt the arrival of Western military equipment by launching its own military offensives um, throughout the Donbass. They, uh, as of now, have not been very successful. Um, Russia hasn't captured. It's lost a lot of equipment and men, but not been successful in gaining territory. So I think Russia's doing that because there is always going to be a time lag before... um, big amounts of equipment like the tanks and the infantry fighting vehicles arrive. And it's not just a question of of bringing them geographically into Ukraine. It's also a question of training Ukrainians to to work them. Now, in the past, uh, over the last year, what, um, what NATO countries have been stunned at, and I, again, don't exaggerate using that word, stunned at, is how quickly Ukrainians have learnt to use Western military equipment. And I think that's the product of two things. Firstly, I mean, Ukraine has de facto moved to a NATO-trained army since 2014, and you see that in the different types of military um, uh, operational um, um, activities by the Russian, which is still a Soviet army, and Ukraine, which is a NATO-trained army. It's very different approaches. and uh, the Russian army is completely hierarchical and, um, and has no NCOs, for example. Um, and and also, I think it's a product of Ukraine's um, uh, military-industrial background. Everybody seems to forget that um, Ukraine was a major component of the Soviet military-industrial complex. 40% of Ukraine's economy in the Soviet Union was military-industrial. Ukraine had the biggest plant in the world that made nuclear weapons. It was in Nipropetrovsk which was a closed city then. Um, it had 50,000 employees and built ICBMs, and amongst other things. Um, but when you build these weapons, you also need technology. You need research labs. You need IT specialists. Um, and so Ukraine was in the lead in the Soviet Union in cybernetics. In the 1960s, the first Soviet encyclopedia of cybernetics came out in Ukraine, in Kiev. So all of that tradition has been um inherited into a very vibrant and big it sector in ukraine which actually continued working last year because you can do it from home yeah (laughs) i mean if you're a programmer my brother is an it guy and he works from home now it's the only benefit of covid to be honest because he used to have to you know move around job to job all over the country and um, i think all of that um factors in to how ukraine has been very um very able and very quickly able to um, take on board and use this huge variety of Western military equipment that's been sent to Ukraine and which is now being sent. I mean, there's going to be about three or four different types of tanks, you know, three or four different types of infantry fighting vehicles. The main tank being the Leopard, but there's going to be other ones, the British Challenger, for example, as well. So, um, I mean, I think that when all that stuff starts to arrive, and that will be sort of late March, April. That will tip the military balance definitely in Ukraine's favor, and and so I think we're going to see a very hot um, early spring and summer period. Um, certainly, you know, before it gets very wet in October, November, when it makes it difficult to do um, to do offensives. So I, I mean, hence why I think it's going to be a very crucial year. Zelensky has to show results in, 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 in take, retaking back territory because um, that's the payback for getting this military equipment. Now, there, there were two red lines, shall we say, that the West didn't want to cross. And these were medium and long range missiles. So, um, say, above 100 miles distance um and also um jets the missiles question seems to have been resolved i mean ukraine's going is getting medium-range missiles and the and britain is going to be supplying long-range ones as well so that seems to have been resolved and it's, it seems to always happen like this you know the americans and the french and germans go they they kind of no 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 we can't we can't send this the british and poles start making a fuss Zelensky helps them and then they go, all oh, right, then. all right, all right, fine. Um, I mean, you know, the, they keep saying they're afraid of, of escalation, but I mean, I, mean I, I, I think the fear that was there last year that this would lead to um, uh, Putin using tactical nuclear weapons has now faded because um, the, the key experts, like, for example, Lawrence Friedman, who used to be at King's College, saying it wouldn't make any military sense for putin to use tactical nuclear weapons and it wouldn't stop the war what uh, putin using a tactical nuclear weapon if he saw defeat would lead to a massive counter onslaught by the americans who are threatened this not by using nuclear weapons but using conventional which would destroy the russian army in ukraine which would make ukraine win the war so i'm not sure if putin wants that so I, I just don't see that as a, as a, as a threat anymore, and I don't think that is as prominent in these debates anymore. The jets question is still sort of there's still umming and ahhing about it. Um the British are supporting it, of course, as, a, as are the Poles, as usual. But there's just been a statement a day or so ago by the by the by the head of NATO saying that NATO supports it as an organization supports supplying these jets. So I suspect that will that will happen this year, but of course that will be even longer time lag because of training and this and the other. Although I think that's also exaggerated, the training aspect, because, again, Ukrainian pilots have been doing amazing stuff just with what they've got, um, and I don't think that they would have a problem in, 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 in learning And in this. Um, related to all of this is something, again, that's come out of the margins to the mainstream, and that's the question of Crimea, because it was only really Zelensky. Poroshenko always ignored it um, because Crimean uh, question was never present in the two Minsk agreements, peace agreements signed in 2014-2015. And that was because Putin said the Crimean question's closed. I'm not talking about it. I'm just talking about the Donbass. Well, Zelensky said back in 2020-21, that's wrong. We need to raise the Crimean question, which of course infuri- infuriated Putin. Um, at the time, this was seen as a ridiculous issue because Ukraine would never be able to take back Crimea, its most pro-Russian region of Ukraine, um, and it's simply not possible. Now that the war has taken place, and it's been a year, Ukrainian forces are uh, are doing very well and have actually beaten Russians on at least three occasions in in battles. Now, there's actually, uh, this debate has gone to the mainstream as well, and there's debate about well, maybe Crimea is up for grabs. Mm. Because if you really want Putin to have his back against the wall, it's the Crimean question. It's not the Donbas mm. or Kherson or Zaporizhia. It's a Crimean question. The Crimean question is is you know, it's it's up there as the unique question for Russians. It's a bit like I guess a bit like Kosovo for Serbs. Um and um um some 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 analysts um, and experts are saying that if and when Ukraine liberates the south of Ukraine and those Ukrainian weapons supplied by the west are standing on the black sea coast and they will be able to threaten every russian base in the crimea we're not talking about military intervention in crimea which would be bloody and which would have high military casualties and high civilian casualties we're talking about ukrainian Western supplied Ukrainian weapons standing on the Black Sea closed next to Crimea and threatening to destroy every re- Russian base in Crimea. What's Russia going to do mm. in that situation? Mm. I mean, Ukraine has already shown it's capable of attacking bases inside Russia and inside Crimea using weapons it has built, not Western weapons. Um, you know, stuff using technology and expertise from the Soviet Union. So I think in that situation, um that could be, you know, that's the big game changer, I think. Um and that but that has to come only after Ukraine has successfully liberated um territories. And for me, always the key territory is not the Donbass is southern Ukraine.
2: How do you you know, just speculating, how do you think that Crimea situation could play out
1: then? I think that um the the uh, Crimea becomes Automatically threatened militarily If and when Ukraine liberates southern Ukraine Mm. Because then that land bridge collapses um, It's divided into two because basically you're talking about Ukrainian forces moving south from Zaporizhia And so the Russian troops on the eastern side of Kherson would be surrounded And then Ukrainian troops would be on the Black Sea coast And um, What's Russia going to do? I mean, it would have to potentially move the Black Sea Fleet from Sevastopol to Novorossi. Um It would, um, it's its its logistics and forces. I mean, Crimea is a major hub to, su- to supply its forces inside mainland mm. Ukraine. Mm. That would be gone. And part and parcel of Ukraine moving south to liberate southern Ukraine would be the destruction of the Kerch Bridge. Was already attacked once, so I, I think all of that would be. Uh, I think the Russians are fearing that, um, and 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 um, um, I think that all of all of that taken together would simply be. It would be game changers. I mean, then I think the pressure inside the Kremlin cabal on Putin would be higher, saying, "Do we really want to lose all of this? Do we really want to lose all our, you know." Troops, I mean, these are probably elite Marines and other troops in Crimea. They would get f- this flattened and destroyed by IMARS. So um, I, I think that I don't see any Ukrainian proposals to actually militarily enter the Crimea because that would be just simply quite suicidal. I mean, there's so many Russian bases there, and Russian. you'd be fighting also probably Russian civilians. So, but you can still make your point and force a Russian withdrawals, at least partially, by, by by standing practically at the border of Crimea and threatening to demolish everything there. Um, and and that, that would have game-changers not only in, inside the Kremlin, but against within the Russian mentality in general, with the Russian population. It would show that Putin is weak. It would show that Putin has lost control. And all of these factors together are dangerous for Russian leaders. So um, I think I think it would be it, it would be uh, the potentially the way to end the war. I mean, you could I mean, there's all sorts of scenarios spinning off from that. That okay, we won't flatten everything in Crimea, but then you move out of the rest of mm, Ukraine. Mm. So, so it would be. Potentially strong negotiating. Zelensky would have a, a, a very strong negotiating card by 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 making those threats. Yeah.
2: Before we uh, part ways today, is there anything else you'd like to add that's important to you that we haven't covered?
1: Well, I, I think that um, the, the 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 two things that you know we're on the first anniversary. Um, there's going to be now a lot of reflection on. Um, on, on on why this happened in two thousand and twenty-two, why Putin got it so wrong, mm. and Putin Putin got it wrong on two key areas. He got it wrong about Ukraine. That's easy to explain from my point of view because he never believed Ukraine was a real country, um and he and he always thought you, most Ukrainians are just little Russians, and that they would greet the Russian army as liberators. I mean, I I never believed that, but he did. And that's why he sent such a small army into Ukraine. 175,000 is is, is is very small. Um, to com- In comparison, the Warsaw Pact invaded Czechoslovakia in 1968 with a quarter of a million troops. And that's for a country of 10 million. So Putin invades Ukraine with 45 million population with an army of 175,000. That showed how ridiculously out of touch they these Russian imperial nationalists were with reality on the ground. in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. it also shows it reflects to what degree the Russian intelligence services are not intelligence services. I mean, they just corrupt corrupt organizations that are out there for themselves. They're not in there to collect real intelligence. So they, they got it wrong on Ukraine, but they also got it wrong on the West. Um, they never expected the Western determined reaction and the United Western reaction. But that's the fault of the West, um, I think. Because um, I think uh, there's going to be a lot of books coming out now saying that why were we so weak towards Russia for so long? And thereby we sent the signal to Russia, it can always get away with it. I mean, 2008, Russia invades Georgia. There's not even a slap on the wrist, there's no sanctions at all. A year later, Obama and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton start a reset of relations with, with Russia. He, they're giving him a blank check. Medvedev is supposedly a, a liberal reformer, the new president of Russia. I mean, he was always a puppet of of Putin's. I mean he had never had any real power. But um so they they get away with Georgia. They've already got away with decades of you know doing frozen conflicts and and interfering and intervening in other other countries. They're doing assassinations abroad. I mean, Litvinenko in 2006 in London. Um, I mean, it took a decade for the Brits, British in, uh, report to finally say Putin was probably behind it. it took, in 2016, it finally yeah. came out. They, did, they, did, you know, they attempted to kill Skripal in 2018. They failed, but they killed a British lady. They've done countless assassinations throughout Europe. Election interference, cyber warfare, you name it. And then 2014 happens. They, for the first time since World War II, they invade a country and steal part of its territory, and they invade another part of the country as well. And what happens? They get a slap on the wrist. The, the sanctions are a joke. And the sanctions only are, are implemented after the downing of MH17 in July 2014. But the, but the sanctions were not really serious. Russia never took those sanctions seriously. Um, they were not Iranian-style sanctions, and um, and in fact, to give an example again, Nord Stream two continued to be built. Business continued as usual. Russian oligarchs continued to sit in the Western countries, and they were always agents of of the Russian state. Um, Putin's biggest export was never gas; it was always corruption. He used corruption to buy up sort of you know political favors and favoritism in, in Western amongst Western elites. Um, so if you if you're sat in the Kremlin and you've got all of this history in front of you or behind you, um you' you're, you're going to think now he was wrong, but you're going to think, if I invade Ukraine, I'm going to get another slap on the wrist, maybe, mm-hmm. and that'll be it. yeah, yeah. nothing will happen. And that's what they thought. So we because all our signals were wrong to Russia, Russia thought it would again get away with it. It didn't this time, but that's our our fault in the West. We were we had completely not been willing to actually see the real Russia, the, the real Putin, as it were. Um, and sadly, that had to come in 2022. Um, Ukraine had to suffer the most of most from that. You know, the biggest refugee crisis since World War II, war crimes, you name it, and massive global crisis um energy crisis yes there have been some positives now europe finally is en- is energy independent of russia but but you know the price was massive to pay for this and a final note i will say that there is debate taking place and zelensky is promoting this that ukraine should join nato and the eu let's leave the eu aside for a moment but i think he has a point on nato Because if we're looking at scenarios down the road, let's assume Ukraine defeats Russia. Um, Russia then is not going to just lick its wounds and say, okay, it's finished. We're not going to try again. It's going to rebuild its army over three, five plus years and try again to invade Ukraine. Mm. It's never going to give up with these Russian leaders in power. And we're going to have a second wave of this global and European crisis. The only way to stop that is to bring Ukraine into NATO, is to close down this grey zone of countries like Ukraine between the West, i.e. EU-NATO, and Russia's Eurasia. And, and, and then um, Europe and the global economy will be secure. But I'm guaranteed that if, after Russia's defeated, Ukraine is not brought into NATO, there'll be a second wave of this down the road. Russia will do it again. And we'll be, well, here we go again, you know, supplying military equipment, global crisis, economic crisis, high utility bills, you name it, inflation. So the only way to resolve that is to simply prevent Russia ever thinking about invading Ukraine again is by bringing Ukraine into NATO. I mean, I don't see any any other way. And you, and all of the arguments against bringing Ukraine into NATO, which existed before, and now have gone out the window. And one of the big ones, well, the two, the two big ones were, we can't provoke Russia. Well, that's obviously a joke, a joke now. Yeah. Um, um, and secondly, there isn't enough support in Ukraine, particularly in eastern, eastern Eastern Ukraine, where there are Russian speakers. Again, that's no longer the case. If there was a referendum in Ukraine today, 70-80% of Ukrainians would, support, would vote for joining NATO. And that includes eastern and southern Russian-speaking Ukrainians. So... I think there, there are many uh, questions that are going to come up like this, including, you know, reparations towards Russia. What do we do with Russian money mm. frozen in the West? Mm. What do we do with Russian leaders? Do we put them on trial? These are all questions that are going to continue after Russia is defeated. I mean, it's not the end of the story when Russia's military is defeated. It's just the beginning of another chapter, as it were, dealing with I mean, this would be the first time in history that you potentially are putting on trial leaders of a, of a country that has nuclear weapons. Mm. Yeah, and this is, We're in a different complete ballgame. We are,
2: yeah. we are. I mean, I've, I've been fearful for some time that even if this war does end in the next couple of years, that it will happen again in 10 or 15 years' time. And there's a reason why a lot of former Soviet states were desperate to join NATO, and it was this very reason.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, you know, What's happened? One of the outcomes of this war is that the center of gravity of NATO has moved from Central Europe, Germany, France, shall we say, Central Western Europe to the east. Because the countries like Poland and the Baltic states were always going on about the potential Russian threat, they were always slapped down as Russophobes. Mm. You know. And now, now they're going, We told you so! Yeah,
2: yeah, we told you so!
1: Yeah. And we were right. So it in the same way as I went to my dad and said, that "My dad was right." <laughs> um, so um, I, I think I think it's a big. The whole invasion has been a massive wake-up call. Yes, hopefully it will lead to some countries in NATO finally spending the two percent of GDP on defence that they've been told to do since two thousand and six. Yeah.
2: But we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> yes, we will
1: see. Um, you know, the French will keep going on about having an independent military arm in Europe, spend less than 2%. So mm, mm. They are.
2: <laughs> well, thank you so much for that, Dr. Kuzi. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work?
1: I think the easiest way is simply to do um, a Google search. I mean, usually most of my articles come up there. I do have a website called uh, Between Europe and Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, it hasn't been updated for a while but um, I publish a lot with things like Atlantic Council with New Eastern, New Eastern Europe and the easiest way just type my name mm. into Google mm. uh, things will come up um, if the if you want something specific please be happy to contact me on Twitter or elsewhere I'll give you my email and I'll send you specific articles um, which are usually you know behind a paywall like with academic articles or books.
2: Well, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.